Okay, well, uh, good afternoon, uh, Dublin. I hope that you've uh, lunched well. I'm not sure what the collective noun is for a group of freelancers. A scribe of freelancers, <laughs> a haggle, a disputation, an exploitation of freelancers, an enterprise of freelancers. So whatever with that, whenever I'm in a gathering such as this, I have three things on my checklist. Firstly, I like to see if there is anyone in the room I know whose work I admire. Secondly, I like to check if there's anyone we owe money to. <laughs> and thirdly, I like to take note of where the exits are. And with that done, as I'm here in the capital city, you'll have noticed that I've dropped the Cork accent uh, because <laughs> I know that there are those who find it confusing and open to misinterpretation. So there'll be no talk from me about Connie Dodgers, Doucher Boy, Langers, Doing Panna, and I Will Yeah Like. <laughs> Although I've worked for more than a year with colleagues from the Irish Times, I don't feel yet sufficiently confident to present in their tone and timbre. So you're stuck with my non-estuarine English, I'm afraid. I note that your morning sessions did include speakers from Tara Street, and I'm confident that they provided value for money. Value for money, or VFM, because everything has to be abbreviated uh, these days, preferably with an emoji. It's an important theme of what I'll say to you in the next 20 minutes. My biography in your programme is short and minimalistic, uh, which is the way I like my news stories. Editor at the Irish Examiner it says, there aren't too many hostages to fortune there, and you won't find any on my LinkedIn account, barely updated for 15 years, or my Twitter account, because I don't have one, as an act of policy, or indeed my Facebook page, which exists solely for me to have some dialogue with my children who live in Johannesburg and Sussex, respectively. Dad, my daughter, says, it's called Facebook. You're missing the point. You have to have a picture of yourself on it. I am on WhatsApp. I don't have an Instagram account, and I don't make it past page one on a Google search. And in my advancing years, that suits me just fine. From all of this, you might imagine that I am a, a digital Luddite. Uh, nothing is further from the truth, and I'll have something to say about the ability to offer cross-platform services in order to make money as a freelance in the future. I feel, however, I should offer you some context about myself so you can judge the heft of what I have to say to you. I became a journalist in 1970 as a reporter in West London, so this is my 49th year in the trade, and I've spent 15 of those in Ireland. This is twice as long as I've spent in any other newspaper market, and there are positive reasons for that decision, which I'll explain later. In those five decades, I've done every editorial job in a newspaper that it's possible to do, except all the new and trendy ones, such as data editor or social media correspondent, or trending analyst, or head of values. So, okay, I borrowed those last two from BBC Two series W1A, 
so they are meant to be a lampoon. Uh, my apologies to anyone who has those titles uh, or has friends who do. Uh, I like to get the apology out in the same sentence as the insult. Uh, <laughs> because in the connected world we all inhabit, there are lots of people out there looking for something to be offended about. I've edited weekly papers, free newspapers, morning newspapers, evening papers and business-to-business -business publications. I've worked for eight different corporations. I've been a publishing director. I've been a managing director with full P&L responsibilities. I've run newspaper sales departments, marketing departments and production. I went into management because I thought newspapers were too important to be left to accountants and marketing people. In the mid-1990s, I made an important decision, which was to work for myself. I hadn't quite reached the stage of agreeing with Jean-Paul Sartre and Wiclow that l'enfer, c'est les autres, hell is other people, but I was not far away from that conclusion. I didn't have what I think Humphrey Bogart once described after appearing in the petrified forest in 1936 as FY money. Unlike Lee Child, I did not go away with a sense of anger from a corporate restructuring at the age of 40, spend $6 on pencil and paper and write the first of 24 Jack Reacher novels. Nor like David Simon, find time to deliver a book while doing the day job and then convert that into a wonderful TV series called The Wire, the 51st episode of which is entitled More With Less and it encapsulates many of the dilemmas of modern publishing. The need for profit, the challenge to ethical standards, declining newsroom numbers and the conflict between the imperative to be lean and the requirement to be excellent. Those tensions are there to an even greater extent than when that episode was first aired, which was in 2008. And the reasons for that are apparent to us all. The first reason, and this is my second and final list of three things, was that the financial crisis which began that year, 11 years ago, damaged everyone and its effects are still being felt. The heroine of Barbara Kingsolver's excellent novel Unsheltered, published last autumn, is a freelance journalist called Willa Knox. And early in that story she laments, it just seems like I don't know, there's less money in the world than there used to be. I don't know how else to put it, like something's broken. And who hasn't felt some of that? From my perspective, we have to work three, four times as hard and provide a portfolio of solutions to get a reduced sum of money from advertisers. You may feel the same. Second reason on my list is technological. When I entered newspapers, let alone when I started to work for myself, there was no such thing as Twitter. That was launched in the summer of 2006. <coughs> Facebook was two years before that. Google will be 21 this year. That other behemoth, Amazon, is maybe four years older. Who now remembers Magellan and Webcrawler? Or when Alta Vista was the portal of choice? Netscape, what happened to that guy? 
There is a, a built-in obsolescence and transience in all technological platforms, and the companies that provide them have, like sharks, to keep moving forward, or they will die. And some of them will die, and their footprint in the history books will be far less than the 178 years delivered by the Irish Examiner, or the 160 years of the Irish Times, or the 127 years of the Echo, formerly Evening Echo, or the 114 years of the Irish Independent. I am not one of those critics who's prepared to blame the troubles and travails of conventional publishing upon big tech. I worked for nearly a decade from 1994 to 2004 solely in the digital arena and I saw the consequences of the first dot-com bubble. I do not think that the ubiquity and apparent personalisation of these networks means that they will inevitably carry everything before them in the future and forever. Well, that is probably a subject for a separate presentation. What should interest us more as journalists is the way in which technology has changed and is affecting the way and the manner in which people process information and the impact that has on, uh, to put it crudely, storytelling. We've seen the way in which Twitter has become the way, the channel on which to break stories, even if those stories are not accurate, which they are frequently not. You can present this as a democratisation of the channels of communication, or you can present it as a dangerous, subversive and socially irresponsible threat. And being journalists, we are all capable of writing it more than one way. And Twitter can also remind us of the historic truth that publishing is a dangerous business, which can have unforeseen consequences. Of course, we no longer punish people for seditious libel, as they did in the 17th century, by cutting off their ears. Uh, the modern penalty for imprecision of language, for ambiguity or sloppiness of thought, for promulgating unpopular or minority views, is a kind of instant collective hysteria, a howl round the digital equivalent of the rough music which rural societies throughout Europe and North America once used to impose their and uphold their view of community standards. The rapid response of what is loosely termed public opinion is a phenomenon of the networked world which we all inhabit and will continue to be so until the first great cyber war, whenever that comes, teaches us not to be so reliant upon and so trusting of technology. So, if the first of the big changes to affect us as journalists and our ability to earn a living was financial, because it started and continues to drive the requirement for industry consolidation in search of efficiencies, and the second was technological, in that it ushered in a portfolio of networked new platforms to be serviced, then the third factor is what has happened to our readers, or consumers, or customers, or however you wish to describe them. It is an inescapable fact that our output is used in different ways now. We all know about sharing. Most digital platforms facilitate it. Being shared is seen as a desirable thing. 
is one of the ways in which journalists and commentators measure themselves and indeed are measured. I often hear it asked, and how many followers does he or she have? But what impact is this having on our audience? Well, coincidentally, I have some research which was released this morning. There's a collaboration between University College Cork and other European universities and in Germany and Scandinavia. This work has analysed four years of Twitter traffic. A century of publications of books on Google Books, movie ticket sales over the past 40 years, citations from scientific publications for 25 years, 10 years of Google Trends and 5 years of data from Reddit and Wikipedia. This learned paper, because academics have an eye for a headline, is called Accelerating Dynamics of Collective Attention. <laughs> and it lays out a, a, a number of conclusions. The first of those is that the abundance of information narrows our collective attention span. This has taken place not only across social media, but in other diverse domains such as web searches, books, movie popularity and more. The report says it seems that the allocated attention in our collective minds has a certain size, but the cultural items competing for that attention have become much more densely packed. It warns that this, is, that this contributes to public discourse becoming increasingly accelerated and fragmented, and cites as a piece of evidence some modelling based on the global daily top 50 hashtags on Twitter. The scientists found that in 2013, a hashtag stayed in the top 50 for an average of 17.5 hours. Within three years, that had declined to 11.9 hours, a reduction of just under one third. In other words, when more content is produced in less time, it exhausts the collective attention earlier. A shortened peak of public interest is directly followed by the next topic, because of unrelenting competition for novelty. And that has implications for us as journalists, I think. If readers have an insatiable craving for novelty, but have too much information coming at them, that is going, that is going to place pressure on delivery and on standards. In short, competition for time and the ability to grab the eye is going to become even more intense. And that is one of the reasons that there is a move towards what I think is known as slow journalism, although it is similarly slow in gathering critical mass and public attention. In the UK, there is a publication called Delayed Gratification that waits for three months before returning to what were headline stories and contextualising them. There's a Kickstarter project called Tortoise launched by X-Times and BBC editor James Harding as ProPublica in the US, to, cor to correspondent in Holland. Last week, Journal.ie announced a new initiative called Noteworthy, supported by Google's Digital News Innovation Fund under the stewardship of Ken Fox, who's a freelancer whose work is known to many of us. 
As with any journalistic enterprise, we wish him well with that. I don't know if Ken is accurately reported when he was asked what motivated the creation of the new platform. Press Gazette quoted him as saying, I think it's the same issue that affects media in every country of the world where investigative, more in-depth reporting is oftentimes the first thing that gets chopped. I don't agree with that. I said earlier that there were positive reasons why I had stayed working in Ireland for 15 years, twice as long as I'd been anywhere else, and 13 years longer than I originally contracted for. I know the English have a habit of outstaying their welcome, you might think that this is but one more example. But a major reason that I remained is that I think this is still an excellent newspaper market where the written word still counts for something. If old mainstream media, to use that pejorative term, has cut back on investigative and in-depth reporting in the Republic, then I haven't noticed it. I know that the Irish Examiner has spent hundreds of thousands of euro upon it and in defending it from legal challenge and that we will continue to do so. Every day I see examples of it in the nation's publications and yesterday morning and this morning were no exception. That's not to say that there is any room for complacency. Someone once said that newspapers resembled a herd of wild beasts clustered around an ever-diminishing watering hole. Who was that? Oh yes, it was Nick Clegg, <laughs> and he was British Deputy Prime Minister, currently Vice President for Global Affairs and Communications in Facebook. Change is accelerating in the market and the Darwinian principle of being able to adapt to that is an important quality. Complicated, long-form journalism can take some time before it bears fruit and there are bills to be paid in the meantime. Putting together story packages requires expansion of skills or the ability to work collaboratively with others. I see in the following session you're looking at the subject of how not to fleece yourself and it's important that everyone understands their own worth and can put a price on it. What I learned in work for myself and what I still know now is that it takes courage and resilience and organisation and self-belief to be a freelance plus the ability to see the way in which the market is moving and equip yourself accordingly with fresh skills and knowledge. I recall that one of the people who correctly forecast the 2008 financial crisis two years in advance was Gillian Tett of the Financial Times. She has a PhD in social anthropology from Clare College in Cambridge. And I remember her describing in an interview that it was her expertise in that discipline that allowed her to identify the patterns and interactions which led to the financial crisis from which much of the world is still suffering and also established her as one of the world's foremost journalists. Knowing something that someone else doesn't, that's competitive edge and it has a real value. It's good to see also that your concluding session today is on archive research I have a real concern that too many journalists base their research on the internet and the capacity of search engines. My worries are these. 
I don't know how many people here get requests to amend or delete online versions of news reports under the so-called right to be forgotten. We get a lot and they have increased rapidly since the General Data Protection Regulation. In nearly all cases we reject those approaches or if we amend the tax text we try to make it clear that a change has been made but I know of other examples where story amends are not flagged or where an item simply disappears offline. Whether this takes us into the realm of Orwell's Ministry of Truth is a debate for another time and another place, but I'm satisfied that Google cannot be regarded as a primary source for serious journalists, while this practice and lack of transparency continues among the publishers which it is indexing. And although this may be the verdict of a dinosaur, I will always trust hard copy more. You will also, I think, have seen that comment that appears at the bottom of the Google search return. A comment which says, some results may have been removed under data protection law in Europe. Then it has a hyperlink that says, learn more. <laughs> I've always thought that this contained the kernel of a really good thriller. What's been removed and why and when? Who has done the removing? Where has it gone? How can you get it back? I think I could write that up with suitable characterization and make some money out of it. Or I could just turn it into a complete plot line and sell it to Lee Child. He's probably got time on his hands. Google tells me that Jack Reacher has never been to Dublin. It's a natural habitat for him. I can make some money and head away to watch the Cricket and Rugby World Cups. Lee Child extends the franchise to Liffey. It's a win-win freelance situation. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that I've made it clear to you that people who freelance have my admiration. It is tough being out there in the rain on the blasted heath, like King Lear. Although topically, to quote Melisandre, the night is dark and full of terrors, let us not frighten ourselves too much. We can still all make a living if we are nimble enough. So thank you for listening and I hope the rest of this day is fruitful for you.